Everything well, goes wrong. I didn't even consciously update it. I think the computer made the call for me, which, hmm. you know, it's just one more step towards robot domination. Yeah. Uh, now, Alexa shared a story with me the other day. It was on the screen about how humans and robots will collaborate in the future. Yeah. I was like, well, that's fucking creepy. They won't collaborate. Well, but this Alexa wants us to get along. Which one is me? Can you turn it down? Like a, yeah. Is that here. really loud? Yeah, for me. Okay. Testing. Perfect. And, uh, oh, damn it. What did you do? No, I didn't do anything. It's no. okay. I just... Now, how am I supposed to get back to the... Fucking... God damn it. What? <laughs> Don't mind me. Just continue. Is it recording? Continue. Oh. Yes, yes. And, uh, we, anyway, we got this 20-page outline Yeah, what today. the fuck is this? It's I like know. a Gutenberg Bible. I know, and we'll never get to half of it. <laughs> and the paper, I accidentally... It hasn't even been that long of a I week. Know. You know, like nothing really happened. I know. Well, shit happens. I, I was working on this yesterday, but I think we should get going here. And Time's we're back. Welcome to Recovery in the Middle Ages, the podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads in their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. I'm Nat X, and I'm a person in long-term recovery. I'm Mike. I'm yeah. a podcast host. And boy, do we have a show for you. Today on RMA, is the disease model of addiction apropos or apra-no? And we discuss the groundbreaking documentary about anonymity and advocacy in recovery, The Anonymous People. All this and more today on a very special edition of RMA. Yay. I feel like I should explain... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I should explain my introduction today. Okay. Well, I knew I knew you were going to. Yeah. Because you made that extra comment there. <laughs> well, we we're watching this uh, documentary that we're talking about today. Oh. And a lot of it oh. uh, discusses the language we use and how we disclose to other people that we are a person in long-term recovery. So that, my friend, is how they tell people that this is the way we should you know, introduce our affliction. Like to the guy you're buying a bagel from too? Yeah. Hi, I'm Nat, and I'm a person in long-term recovery. Can I get a schmear on Can that? Can I get a schmear? So, that was what I was going to say. Okay. Um, okay, this uh, this episode is brought to you by the Recovery in the Middle Ages Patreon. Who is your daddy, and what does he do? All right, we're back Sorry, on the soundboard. <laughs> That was not what I was going I was, for. <laughs> I was wondering when this was going to come back. Uh, yes. What is Patreon? Uh, it's a members-only subscription service featuring a Discord private message service thingy, uh, chat and video meeting platform for all of our patrons, all of them. And yeah. there are more and more every day. Yeah, we're having a to great To my time. great amazement, yeah, people cool. keep joining. Uh, it's like having a recovery support fam family right at your fingertips. Yes. 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 Members get extra mini shows. Yep. Not so many. I right. got just out. as long as the regular show. It's a solid, you know, hour. Yeah. It's a good show. Uh, you get pictures, exclusive merchandise for joining, and, and, and an added level of support for your recovery. Yay. Uh, and that perhaps is the most important. But I don't want this to seem like it's like... Um, 
You know, like a weird cult where, you know, the more you pay, the more access you have to, it, to like, you know, well, the good stuff. It doesn't but help that I, I call it, it the... That's it, capitalism, right? It doesn't help that I call it the inner sanctum. <laughs> yeah. So, but I, you know, I'm a Dungeons and Dragons kid from back in the day. So I love this sort of role play, like in the deep, dark, cavernous, meandering hallways. No, it's medieval too. It yeah. fits with our brand, right? So go to patreon.com slash recovery in the middle ages, one word, to learn more and to sign up. And listen, guys, you don't have to throw us like a million dollars a month, just a couple of shekels to keep the lights on. I mean, we're not, uh, I think Nat and I have come to the realization at this point that neither one of us is going to be retiring from the, the hundreds of hundreds of dollars that we, we could potentially bring in from this <laughs> podcast. But um, there are expenses, and uh, if you could help defer them, we would appreciate that. And as a reward, we will produce some bonus content and so forth and share it with you. Welcome to all the monsters listening stateside, around the world, down the street, across the table, and right next door. Welcome all. Settle in, buckle up, and get ready for excitement, comedy, tragedy, intrigue, mystery, and so much more. Where can they find us, Mike? Well, if they're listening to us now, they have already found us. <laughs> but, True. Uh, you could also find us at our homepage. Yeah. Middle Is that ages. what they call it? Yes. MiddleAgesRecovery.com, where I have not begged anyone to buy a t-shirt in a couple of weeks. <laughs> so I, I still have a box full of them. They're now in the exercise room. Yes. Which, and occasionally the dog wanders in there and pees on things, <laughs> but they're in a box. So, uh, so they're in good shape. Buy a fucking okay. And if you're having trouble purchasing it, we did just update the website. It's possible there may be some errors with yes. the web shop. So, so uh, yeah. So come hang out with us. Uh, you can find us obviously on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, all the usual places. Uh, you can hang out with us, get show updates, meet other monsters, funny memes, the latest news and views, uh, and on Facebook, yeah, Instagram, and Twitter. I would say Facebook is probably our primary means yeah. of communication with the with the group. Sure, right? Yeah. Facebook. So there's a, we have a public page, and if you like that public page, we will know about it. We will find out, and then we will hunt you down yeah. and drag you into the private lair. God, I hope they're not a conspiracy <laughs> theorist. This has nothing to do with the Illuminati. I no, promise. nothing, nothing. But we also, uh, one great thing about joining the private Facebook group is that you will learn about the secret codes to enter our once weekly recovery meeting, which takes place on Sundays at 1130 a.m. Eastern Standard Time mm -hmm. over the Zoom machine. Yeah, and so me, you me can, and Mike pop in sometimes. We do. And, uh, you know, there's sharing and, and we laugh, we cry. We, you know, yeah. it's, it's a great it's a great time. Uh, it's it's moderated by um, G Money Smooth on one week and then Aaron Moore on the alternate week. Or they switch back and forth as yeah. schedule permits. I leave it to them. There's always an interesting topic. Usually it has something to do with what's gone on in the show that week yeah. or something that's been posted in the private Facebook group and it's used as a launching point for a discussion. Uh, it's not a, It's not structured like a 12-step meeting. It's like a, yeah. a conversation that we all have and we kick ideas around and you know, you're more than welcome to we join just us. We just kick it. And um, if you don't know, G-Money Smooth, uh, he's the purveyor, founder, and uh, operator of SoberLiningsPlaybook.com, yeah. one of our, our news partner. Uh, and so uh, he's chock full of info. Uh, so look forward to seeing you there. Great reviews will be read on the air, won't they, Mike? They will. The best place to leave us a review is on the Apple Podcast app if you use that thing. Yeah. So many of the young people these days do not. Guess I've what? Found. What? There's, this is, there's a buzz in podcasting world. Apparently, Spotify now has which it didn't have before, a review feature. All right, guys, listen. So go to Spotify. If you have left us 
a review on iTunes, go to Spotify and leave us a review as well. You can copy your old review if you want yeah. from uh, Apple and just paste it over there. Can they do that? Probably, that, it, right? And please do, because that's my, that's my fix. I get a dopamine hit every time something like yeah, that happens. Yeah, and which, you know, sad face, we don't have one this week. No, right? we don't. Nobody has reviewed us. And we don't have a story from, there's a tell us your story oh my God. on middleagesrecovery.com. Uh, the other thing is we've got a phone number you can call and leave your story or leave a uh, review, whatever you want. I believe it's, uh, uh, <laughs> did I take the number off of here? I think you might have. Well, I don't have it. Well, you know what? What? Uh, it's a great number. It's uh, a great number. It really is. And if I could only tell you what it was, it would be awesome. It's like, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Ugh. You know what? I'm going to leave a space right here, <laughs> and I'm going to read it in during the editing process. All right, yeah, yeah. Eight minutes, 39. The number is 516-888-6297. That's 516-888-6297. Call today. Operators are standing by. Yeah, you're never going to remember that. Yes, I will. Um, okay. Wow. So, um, yeah. So, cool. we're, where are we at, Nat? What are we up to? Well, we're up <laughs> to the first segment. Because we don't have a story and we don't have a review, we go straight to Monster Speaks. What have they been up to? Let's take a peek. The segment we call Monster Speaks. Speaks, 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 speaks. Oh, God. Goodness! So you didn't like my uh, you didn't like my jingle from last week. Last week was, so was rough. I, but I, I like this the one. other direction. I like this. It's some of that old folky weirdness, and uh, I like Just it. Give me a guitar and a Garage Band program. Monsters. Good. Uh, listen, um, speak. If you guys think you could write a better jingle, do Please it. Please do and it. send it to me at mikear at middleagesrecovery.com. I guarantee you, we will use it. Yes, we will. Uh, so do that. At so least once. We had an uh, interesting topic. This was, was not what I intended for Monster Speak, but Mike does whatever he wants. And That's when right. he does, Damn right I do. Sometimes, sometimes it's a winner. Uh, and he posted... Uh, he <laughs> sometimes. 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 Twice a day, like a okay. stop clock. So uh, this time, you didn't say much. You just sort of said, today's New York Times. <clears throat> and then you posted an article. Yes. It was uh, an article called... Uh, Is it misleading to call... Addiction, a disease. Oh, there it is right there in black and white. Yeah, I yeah. think. Mm-hmm. So is it misleading to call addiction a disease? I've been thinking about this a lot lately because the disease model has come up in some of our research. It has. Let me just say that this is, I believe this is the author that Grant interviewed for Sober Linings Playbook. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Because I think this morning when I logged on, I noticed that he had put a link to that. Yeah, I was a little confused because it's I'm easily confused, and um, I didn't realize, um, you know, because Grant's doing these really um, interesting interviews for uh, SoberLiningsPlaybook.com, and we're going to try and sort of work together with uh, who he's uh, interviewing, and this just happened by accident. Happenstance. Happenstance. Either that or the guy's promoting his book, so he got an op-ed in the Times. Right. So, that happens, too. That's what we'll do, promoting your book. Our book. Our book, of course. I've got a... Uh, the funny thing is I'm sketching... We're thinking about doing a video course like on recovery. Yeah, it'll right? be cool. And uh, I was sketching out the outline of it yesterday. Yeah. I think I shared that document with you. But yeah. as I'm looking at it, I'm like, ooh, these could be book chapters too. Mm. Something to go. think about. Something, Something to think, think about. about. 
Um, so you just posted the article and then people read it. It like gave them uh, a little homework here. Uh, the first That's comment nice. would be Melissa M. She says, today, uh, descriptions of brain disease imply that people have no capacity for choice or self-control. Uh, uh, agree. You can ultimately choose not to drink. You can't choose not to have cancer. That's my view. And mm. I've heard that before. People, you know, some people embrace that disease idea, but then there's people who have either gone through cancer themselves or knew somebody and they say, hey, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. This is not like cancer, right? Right. Um, you can't choose, you know. But I mean, I don't know if that's my view on it, but it, that is a view. So it sounds like that's um, Melissa's as well. I mean, choice is an interesting is an interesting place to draw that line, isn't it? I mean, uh, maybe you don't choose to get cancer, right? But you maybe you choose to smoke for 40 years, uh-huh. which results in cancer. Or you choose so, to live on Long Island. So is the smoking like a precursor or is it like a pre-disease state or something? Mm. I don't know. It, it's funky when you start blaming people for yeah. <laughs> for getting a disease because that's not really you know helpful. But I was listening to NPR yesterday and there was a, actually interviewed a... A doctor, uh, he's head of the psychiatry program at some hospital, I forget. I was kind of listening as I was driving my son uh, to school in the morning. But uh, he was a former addict, and he's really against using the term disease. And he's a medical doctor, you know, which uh, I thought was really interesting. And, um, you know, the counter argument is, of course, well, by labeling it as a disease, you... um, you know, you, you, you can, can get, get more resources right. and stuff funneled into it. But, but he said that that's not, not necessarily true because if you look at the state of addiction treatment today, it really hasn't advanced that much, you know, and, and we've been calling it a disease since 1940. Right. And Evan know. Haynes makes a great point in his book, Can America Recover?, which I am trudging through for the interview. And he makes the point that the problem with the disease model is it puts treatment in the hands of doctors, yeah. which he believes is just, you know, based on the history of their mental health and, and you know, healthcare oh, yeah. system, that this is a horrible idea, right? So that, that's the other side that Evan argues. Um, Corey C. says, I saw this article this morning and I agree with it 100%. When people call drinking problems a disease, it makes me cringe. If I hit myself in the head with a frying pan... Is the resulting bruise a disease? Yeah, I think that we call it brain disease. No. <laughs> well, um, it's not a disease. No. It's a condition. Right. Uh, you know, maybe there's a distinction to be drawn there. I like that. Thank you, know. you Corey. Um, Jim Cougar has returned to Munster Speak, and he says, uh, when I first got sober, the disease model really helped me understand that addiction was separated from me. Whatever the heck some scientists think, it really changed my perception and contained it. That's interesting. I like that because it goes to what we're going to talk about later, which is the language we use to describe what it is we're going through, what this affliction is, however you want to. So addiction is separate from you. In other words, That's what he said. I know what he, you're not a moral like right. midget. You you're, are not your thoughts. You are not your actions. Right. right. And I like that. Yeah. It helps you like identify it because before I was thinking of, of addiction as a disease or an allergy, it was just like me. It was what's wrong with me. You right. Know? What am I doing so wrong? Or, and I was doing plenty of things wrong, but um, I like how the, the disease model at least helps you identify it as something you can uh, treat and, and uh, recover from. So, Maybe it's with a searching and fearless moral inventory because right. you know you're also a morally decrepit person. That is true. Uh, Johnny Irish says, "Interesting. However, the disease concept has brought recovery from addiction into the open. Yes, and has allowed for legal protections and insurance coverage and countless other 
positives that I don't think would happen if it was still just considered the consequence of bad choices or lack of willpower. Mm. I struggle with the disease concept, but I don't fight it or deny it as it doesn't really matter what I call it. It matters what to do about it today. Yeah. I don't disagree with that. Like labeling is important, but ultimately it's irrelevant. Yeah. Like I always say, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's true. That's true. Mm -hmm. But, you know, calling something a rose or a petunia doesn't change the fact that it's, you know, a sweet smelling flower. It doesn't. Yeah. But like when you're talking about uh, something that needs to be treated as a, a human maladaptive condition, that needs to be treated. I think labels do matter. Aha. Uh-huh. Labels <laughs> do matter. You heard it here, folks. Tony D says, as with everything, people will have differing opinions on the subject. You just have to go with what's right for you. Um, okay. That's that. <clears throat> I don't like to go down the moral relative. Yeah, I don't path. know about the, all that subjective. Um, but I like the sentiment, which is what we actually talk about here, which is for every um, person, there's another way to uh, recover. Uh, Melissa M says addiction can be passed through DNA. Sort uh, of. What do they call that again? Pre-epigenetic or something? It's epigenetics. Thank you. I keep forgetting. But it's not, it's not addiction that's passed through the, the, the DNA. It's, it's, this is something we're starting to like learn. It's like trauma that's passed through the DNA, which, which elevates your propensity for addiction. Right. So um, it is. It's like coming- generational trauma. Right, they, they're, they're saying that now the latest research says that there is no gene specifically for, at least in the last four books I've read, they're saying the new, the new understanding is no, there is no gene, but you have different gene constellations yes. that add up to it. Right. Um, and so it I think they're sort of getting away from this idea that there is a gene yeah. for every condition. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, some things are very clear, like that BCRA gene for breast cancer. You either have it or you don't. And if you have it, your odds of getting breast cancer are, you know, increased by you know exponentially. But yeah. I think for stuff like um, different mental conditions and other things, like I don't think they they've been able to target specific genes, and certainly not for addiction, at least not yet. Mm. But it may be like a series of genes. Um, uh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, that interact together with the environment. G-Money Smooth, that's uh, Grant Boykin, the uh, editor-at-large of the RMA Newsroom, says, I'm looking forward to the book. Now, he's talking about... This, see, this guy's is, book. Right. So, I was confused because I wasn't putting that together. So, the book that the author of the article uh, wrote. When I talked to the author, he had a very nuanced view on the disease model and recognized the context in which it was developed. He spoke about the purpose it had served while also pointing out the flaws and potential harms. Based on what I've gleaned, I think the book will be a fascinating look at the history of addiction and how we've understood and addressed it, uh, even if it doesn't provide definitive answers. You know what's interesting to me? Like, It seems like for a while, a few years ago, everything that was coming out on addiction was memoir, right? Yes. And now it seems like there's a lot of books that are coming out that really go into the history of how this how addiction's been treated throughout the course of American history, European history, and so on. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the Evan Haynes book is like the biggest example of probably the most sprawling, you know, wide-ranging view of history. But then you have this guy's book coming out, and you have like, you know, Zalovitz's uh, book. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Lemke's book. Yeah, yeah. It's really taking a more holistic view, you know, which I think is a real positive I in think, the field. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, I got addicted to memoirs for a while. I must have listened to 100 well, memoirs. they're entertaining. 
Yeah. Right? I mean, absolutely. everybody likes them. They're so entertaining. The The second half of the big, big book is all stories. Yeah. And, and, and what makes the addiction memoir, like, especially great from a literary perspective is there's a story arc, right? You a know? hero's journey. A hero's journey. Call to adventure. Exactly. There's the mentor, your sponsor, right. the dark night of the soul. Right. You bring it all back when you when you right. heal, you know? And so they're very compelling stories. And if you have a good writer like Naus or somebody, you know, who can really really knows how to write and and you know the the topic of what he's writing about is almost secondary to the talent then it really is a compelling story yeah you know absolutely uh, um then this uh guy mike r was that oh yeah. yeah he said something so i said i said that the more that i get into the research and i mean that like in a uh, internet sort of way the more uh it's and and book reading but uh, the more it seems to me the idea of addiction is like a Rorschach test for whoever's looking at it. Science, scientists who want a biological answer point to the idea of a genetic predisposition. Uh, AA points to structural changes in the brain of long-time drinkers to advance the disease model. People who want to make moral judgments about the behavior of those in addiction can point to the differences between a disease like cancer and a behavior-based activity like drug or alcohol use and find support there. I mostly agree with Johnny Irish. Yay. It doesn't really matter what you call it as long as you're doing something about it in your life. People do recover. There's ample evidence of that in this group and in society at large. Uh, that NPR story the other day, this is a different NPR story, that uh, Alan uh, B. posted cited a 75% recovery statistics for people with some level of substance abuse disorder, which is an extremely hopeful number. Mm. The problem is... You knew there was going to be a problem, right? What is the problem? The problem is, if you're misidentifying the problem, then maybe you aren't applying the correct solution. Aha. <laughs> yeah. That's not the, quite the right inflection. Anyway, at the very least, uh, people are suffering needlessly as different groups with different motivations and agendas fumble around in the dark trying to decide how to label this beast. My own gut feeling, uh, as an untrained person yes. who's just done a lot of reading... And as my own experience, uh-huh. is that addiction has started out, starts out as a maladaptive coping mechanism for traumas big and small. And it's also probably a maladaptive coping mechanism for anxiety and stress. Um, mm-hmm. And that's how it starts. But at some point, then you get into the epigenetics. Right. Then you get into the other environmental considerations. Right. And then it becomes more of a physical problem. Well, you know? right. It evolves. It gets worse. That's why they call it chronic and fatal. Yes. Um, yes. Well, but it doesn't necessarily have to be fatal. It can be chronic and not fatal. Especially if you treat it. Well, there's people that live or, or not. I mean, there's people that live half drunk their entire lives. You know, but everybody dies eventually. Well, sure. So you can blame I mean, nobody gets out of here alive. <laughs> nobody man. is getting out you know, of here it doesn't, alive. You could, but you could die, you know, drunk, empty, you know, hung over all the time. Or not, you know. <laughs> now you started. I mean, up. some people mm-hmm. will will die of this disease. Yeah, no question about that. You know, some people will will not. Some people will die a natural death while being addicted to some sort of drug or alcohol. So this is just um, clarifies the problem with uh, trying to figure out the unified field theory. You started off there with, uh, I felt like we were headed for an answer, right? Yeah. You're like, bing, bang, boom. That is the answer. This point, that point. But then there's always those other things that you're like, yeah, but then there's this and then there's that. And now we're we're back where we started. Just because I don't think the thing is is fatal to 100% of the people. No, just the fact that like after you, you know, make the statement then you're always like but then of course in this scenario and right so there's this is an inexact science right right interesting but but 
I, I feel like the idea that it's the disease is, well, that the condition yes. is inevitably winds up in uh, what jail, death, or institutions. Yeah. Then that precludes the possibility of recovery at an earlier stage of the game. Right. It doesn't have to go that far. It, it doesn't have to go that far. But when you have terms like rock bottom, mm. you know, and, and things that are commonly accepted, and that you look at this as a disease, and the disease always ends in death, then I think you're missing opportunities to arrest some people's fall way early, when you say where arrest, outcomes are better. You don't mean arrest, because there's also the criminal justice component to this. So you using a word like arrest, it's a loaded term. No, I don't mean arrest in that particular <laughs> sense. I mean, hmm. stop one from falling. Yes. That is, that is the rest. Right, so you guys can see that like, this would be the subject of a very long book. I mean, no easy answer. No right. easy box to put it in. Um, not a moral failing and not a disease in the traditional sense. Moving on to our life update here. Oh, um, yeah, do you even remember what happened last week? I had, usually it's Sunday fun day. This was Sunday nuts day for me. Sunday um, nuts day. Yeah, nuts day. Um, my little guy Max uh, <clears throat> missed church for a birthday party. So it was me and my 11-year-old and getting him moving and getting him to church and uh, and all of that. And this this is my the week after I returned from my um, from my lay reading uh, nightmare. Oh, yeah. Um, and then uh, as soon as I <laughs> I ended up going to the uh, to the supermarket with my son because I was really trying to to make him be like okay it's a daddy and Noah day you know we're gonna watch football which we never do I don't know football. why I don't know why I said that <laughs> I was just like I was so caught up in being like yeah it's dad and Noah so I'm like what did dads do they watch football that's really funny because your wife said to my wife uh, yeah I think no I think. Nat's on the couch watching football, and I'm yeah. like, "What? what? You know, <laughs> he's doing what?" And then it really never was. But I had this like this romantic idea in my head of like the father with the football, and <laughs> we're gonna eat <laughs> snacks and sit on the couch. You yeah, know, it's the most American thing ever. I, I don't even. Yeah, it's it's in, in any case. So the precursor to that was, and this is how I sold it to him. I was like, we're going to get all of the snacks because football is all about the snacks yes. and the junk food, and you know he loved that. Um, and then, so we went to the supermarket and I ended up buying like $140 just in garbage, like, like chips and uh, dips. Just the worst. Did you get a five layer bean dip? That I didn't. That, that always makes an appearance Super I got, Bowl Sunday. At I my got house. tater skins. I got the mini tater hot dogs. Skins. I got, um, all of these, you know, things you make in the oven and chips and, um, mm. and it, why didn't you have a football party and invite me? You don't need watch football either. If you have all those snacks, I will. Well, we should have because the best part was um, uh, Ben came over to hang out with Noah. Yeah, and then uh, and they're then doing I, something weird on the Oculus. It's some game called they play like some game called something tag gorilla tag gorilla tag. Even though they're both in the same room yeah. with each other with wearing headsets, yeah, it's so fucking <laughs> yeah. weird. Uh, but like in, instead of me hanging out with my feet up, you know, watching football, eating snacks. It turns out that um, I actually had to go to my parents' house where I uh, prematurely brought a bunch of boxes from my store to, you know, to store it, and I needed them back. <laughs> and my mother forgot her phone at my house when she was babysitting, so I'm like, crap. I have to go to my parents' house. It's about a 15-minute drive, not bad. Uh, and then uh, get, 
what, what was I doing? I had to get the boxes, give my mom her phone, and then I get the call from my wife. Can you go to the supermarket? Weren't you just at the supermarket? Yes. Uh, so I was at the supermarket twice. And um, anyway, I didn't end up getting home, I think, until 4.30 and the day was over. And, you know, ugh. I do, just, you, do you enjoy, like, I was thinking about this this morning. Do you enjoy like sitting around doing nothing? No, I, me I, either. I can't do it. I say I want to, and then I never want to do it. Um, <clears throat> I I like to do things like read, though. That's what I've been because I really have been trying to focus because I always listen to books. I and mm. Evan Haynes' book I'm reading, but because of my ADHD, uh, it's very difficult for me to sit still and focus on just reading, and so I can only do I don't know. 30 to 40 minutes at a time. Uh, but Ben came over and the day ended up fine. I made a fire, which is my other favorite thing to do. Yeah. And um, it was great. I think Ben had a good time. Yes, he did. And uh, he did. Yeah. I've been making a lot of fires this week because my heat went out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Your heat went out. That's, my heat went out. And you guys know it's been like, you know, below freezing. It wasn't all the heat. It was like the heat in the living room and the dining room and stuff. Uh, just one zone. And so they came over and they fixed it and they left and then it broke because they didn't really fix it. And then they had to come back the next day. So it was kind of chilly for a day. But I've been putting logs on in the fire in the middle of the day. About, oh, working, in the day? Yeah, while I'm working from home That's in my so flannels. Cool. You know, <laughs> it's, a, it's like I, I just pretend I live in Maine or something. You know, it's wow. not boring Long Island. That's a fantasy of mine. Living in like the country and all of that stuff. Um, speaking of things going completely awry, uh, Saturday, the previous day <clears throat> I was working and the kids and my wife, I had like a nightmare at the house. It was like two different play dates. There was three kids in the house and I of course had to work cause I'm closing the store and I got to be there in these last few days. Mm-hmm. And the, Noah wanted to move the PS5 to the basement for the which he's not allowed to do. And I get a call with my wife panicking. The internet was out. Oh, because, no. So she's like, I have two play dates here, like five kids, and there's no internet. I don't know what Noah did. And ugh, so that was, that was the nightmare. We ended up fixing it. He just pulled out a plug. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, that was my Saturday nightmare. Oh. So it was not a restful weekend. Yeah, not I don't know. All. I can't sit still. I, I find like if I'm not constantly doing something like, and I don't know, like I can sit still for like 15, 20 minutes a day, right? Uh, when I meditate. Beyond that, I'm like, I have to be in constant motion. And yeah. I don't know why. I mean, I'm, I, I'm just way. like, I have all this energy. That's I why I like to listen. Around. I love listening to books and podcasts mm. because I can do a uh, hundred. But I, I, we go to bed like so early and like lay in bed and watch TV. Like that's when I do it. Or because it's been so cold lately, I've been on the treadmill, right? Mm-hmm. And the, and I've been multitasking. Okay, so I get up at four forty five in the <laughs> oh, morning, that right? Is By five, you know, I feed the dogs. I do all the fucking dishes from whatever yeah. was left over from last night, and then I get on the treadmill and I watch TV on the treadmill. Mm. Like, and I used to do this at work for like. 13 years, I would every day I would watch like an hour of TV while I was on the treadmill. Huh. So I'm watching this show. It's like got Joe, uh, Joel Kinnaman in it. It's like a, a alternate history of NASA. Oh. Yeah, it's really good. It's called For All Mankind. Yes, I know it. Yes, really good show. Very cool. But like to me, that's like 
the only way I can watch TV is if I'm running a, a nine and a half minute mile right. while I'm doing it. <laughs> like, what does that say about me? Like, do I need to smoke some pot or something? I mean, I'm the same way. I've got so much going on in my head. I'm smoke doing weed every day. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know. I got it, you know, so much going on. Um, but, uh, you know, it wasn't all chaos. Some of it was just heart wrenching, right? We sort of, uh, you know, there was some. There was a bottle of wine. Oh, right. Okay. Right? You know, let me let me go back. You know, I was thinking about this yesterday when yes. I was telling you about this this encounter I had with a bottle of wine in my kitchen yeah. that was lurking behind the toaster oven. Yeah. Um, because do you recall, like two days earlier, I was at Whole Foods and I texted you a picture. Whole Foods in the next town over from ours has set up this enormous display. Yeah. Of non-alcoholic is that a dry January products? It, I I don't know, and because I used to go to Whole Foods when I was looking for like a six pack of Heineken Zero, and maybe I could find it. Right, but it seems like they've gone all in on the NA stuff. They, I'll put a picture. I took a picture. I'll put it up in the Facebook group. Yeah, you sent me that picture. But it's like they have uh, non-alcoholic whiskey, non-alcoholic tequila. Um, all the varieties of non-alcoholic beer. Uh, and, and then, you know how you can now, apparently you can buy alcoholic cocktails in a can, like a rum and Coke and no. like a gin and tonic. Really? You can. There's also non-alcoholic versions, like like de-alcoholized rum and Coke. You can buy a six-pack of it in a can. Wow. And uh, I'm standing there staring at this stuff. And I'm thinking, huh, you know, I pick up a bottle of non-alcoholic whiskey and I'm looking at it. I pick up the non-alcoholic tequila and I'm looking at that and I'm comparing them and I'm spent, I, I spent like 10 minutes there going, yeah, should I buy this non-alcoholic? And then I said, buy me a the bottle of uh, non-alcoholic whiskey. Yeah, but I kind of freaked myself out because I'm, I'm like, I'm standing there for a long time, like debating the virtues of buying one of these faux alcohol products, yeah. you know, and I'm like, I don't even like whiskey. Right. I don't even like tequila. Like, you know. Why would I buy this bottle of non-alcoholic whiskey? Yeah, you know? and that's why... Why would I have that in my house? When I was in uh, AA more regularly... Um, oh, we need to pause this. This is the school. My okay. school's calling. So non-alcoholic whiskey... Yeah, like why do I want that in the house? You, you know, know uh, it's, to, to do what? To torture me? Like <laughs> I had guys uh, when I was for, in, in AA more. Uh, the subject of non-alcoholic beer came up a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, when I met you, I was actually shocked because when you said, Oh, I like, you know, uh, non-alcoholic beer. And I had this ingrained, like not just fear of it, but the a revulsion to it. Yeah. Uh, and then I realized, why am I so like, why is this bothering me so much? Yeah. Um, and the, 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 the theory was if you're, if you need to drink a non-alcoholic beer, because we all agree it doesn't really taste good. Um, you know, that that trains you to get used to drinking those flavors again and that you're more likely to relapse, which I actually think I agree with to some extent. I don't know. I don't know. I, just as you were saying that, I, it started, started getting me to think about like gut flora and how like your gut health is so instrumental in driving behavior sometimes. And you thought of that? Yeah. Wow. Because I never considered that before. Huh. Because, you know, people who eat like a lot of junk food find it very hard to stop eating junk food right. because their gut flora has been changed oh. to expect and appreciate that sort of thing going yeah. into it. So uh, that's interesting. I tend to believe that, you know, bad, best idea is to not get yourself used to drinking whiskey-like substances. But it's also could be something where 
you make a really cool mocktail. Yeah. Um, and it just adds like a complexion, like a complex flavor right. uh, to it. But you can make a really good mocktail without using de- you know, right. de-alcoholized whiskey. And, you know, so I would, I would like to try it, right? Because I'm not afraid it's going to drive me back into the arms of, of Jameson, where I never lived in the, in the first place. Yeah. But, um, but it's expensive. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to spend the money on something I'm going to take a sip of. I'm going to so, avoid it. I, I don't, I'm not going to. See, I don't, I don't think non-alcoholic beer is dangerous to my recovery. But, but non-alcoholic whiskey. Non-alcoholic, maybe. yeah. I don't know. Like, I think there's different reasons for, for using one or the other, honestly. Mm. I mean, am I going to sit at night with a two fingers of fake whiskey like I might. <laughs> swirling around in a glass well, that's like, what, I what pictured. the fuck that's like, what i pictured yeah sitting there with non-alcoholic whiskey on the rocks and sipping it and you know but then i get back to romanticizing all the you know scott like drinking behavior right it's, right you know. it is drinking behavior but, I, but I, on the other hand in the summertime when i get off a fishing boat i can suck down a non-alcoholic beer it's refreshing it's cold and it doesn't do anything for me i'm <laughs> like i just have one interesting like, i don't want another one anyway so so against that backdrop you know, and th- this week is always difficult for me because 15 years ago, my wife uh, passed away this, this week, right? Yeah. Well, next week, technically. But at this time of year, I always get a little funky. And, uh, and that show I was watching, For All Mankind, there's a scene, without giving away too much, there's a scene in there where someone has to disconnect the respirator oh. or something. And it was almost under the very similar circumstances to what happened with me. Jeez. So I had that sort of playing through my head. I found it uh, to be a difficult day yesterday for a variety of reasons, you know, professional stuff, all kinds of things going on. I uh, got some problems with my older son. You know, he's sort of checked out of uh, high school because he figures, oh, I get into college, I don't have to do any more work in high school, right. which, you know. Senioritis. Senioritis, but to a degree that is endangering his acceptance letters, you know. Right. And uh, he's he's very, uh, you know, being, having the severe ADHD and, and this, it's, he's very difficult to communicate with. Anyway, so all this is going on and I'm walking, I'm just in a dark mood and I walk through the kitchen and I catch a sight of this bottle of wine out of the corner of my eye next to the toaster oven and I just got an Im- immediate case of the, like, fuck it. Why am I bothering? Yeah. Why do I bother behaving and doing good and all this stuff? Yeah. Life is just shit anyway and, you know, there's the bot. I'm like, why can't, why can't I just check out? Yeah. Check out for a few hours. They call it a know? case of the fuck. It's right. And when you texted that to me, I was like, oh. Yeah, I texted I, you right away because yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is not good. Because I've not felt that like yeah. sort of unstable, you know, in a, in a long while. Yeah, and I it was just like you. a confluence of shit coming together on the same day, yeah. you know? And it, le- it really got me thinking that, you know, you gotta, you gotta watch yourself, man. You gotta watch yourself because you can get complacent. I yep. was, I'm very complacent in my recovery because I have never, I never feel tempted to drink alcohol. Yeah, and it does creep and up. There on There was you. the bottle, and I but, was like, man, I almost grabbed it. So just it down, man. And I was, I was a little worried, but the fact that you were telling me about it showed me that you were using your tools to not do it, and that's that's a great example of how you use your recovery partner. Uh, and the fact that we talk to each other every day about nothing in particular, right. when it is a, a time that you need to say something, mm-hmm. um, you know, more, more substance or you're in trouble, you're used to it. And it's not such a, it's not like you'd be texting your friend out of the blue that you haven't talked to in six months, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and it's, it's funny because you texted me that now, 
I didn't like say anything that made you feel better. Um, I was just listening. But the important part is you got it out. And then that changes the calculations just by, for me anyway, just by telling another person. Yes. You know, without, I, I mean, when I tell you something I'm going through or I'm having a similar day, I'm not looking for you to provide me the answer. No, you're it's like just, a woman in that respect. Right. I'm just <laughs> exactly like a woman and uh, proud of it. You know, I love women. And, um, and so that, that's just a great example, guys, because a lot of you have been asking me uh, privately, um, you know, how do I deal with this situation or mm-hmm. what should I do in this one? And what I always say is good communication is huge. Honesty and communication with either your partner or your podcast right. partner. Right. Um, it's just getting it out there. It makes a huge difference. There's a magic to it. I will, I will tell you this, man. Being alone at home all day is not... It's not like not a good flavor for me. Like I I like my solitary time. I really do. But, you know, I feel like I have two dogs, right? And when my wife and kids walk through the door, I'm like one of those dogs. I'm like, hey, how's it going? You know, like it's it's just it's weird. But, you know, speaking of which, I had people reach out to me from my past this week. Yeah, Yeah, two of them independently. Um, Wow. More lawyers? No, one one guy out west is a banker and stuff, and he's deciding, you know, this might be a time to reevaluate his relationship with alcohol. How does he know you're a person to talk to about it? Because um, he talked to me about it six months ago, and oh. I wasn't quite ready huh. to... But you planted the seed. I guess I planted the seed. He's, he's actually he drops in on our uh, Facebook group every once in a while, too. Oh, cool. Yeah. And, um, and then another person I went to law school with who is, you know, also aware of what we do, um, reached <laughs> out to discuss, you know. And... You know, I appreciate that. I any help I can give to anybody. That, it's so cool because when when we first met, like think about where you were with telling people that you were in recovery, right? And, and now look at you. Look at you now. <laughs> look at you now. And that is that is the magic. I love it. It is. Um, it's magic. Bottle of wine. Um, so that's cool. People are looking out. Oh, I had one more uh, thing I wanted to talk about before we move on. Um, we had a dinner. Uh, the other night with um, my wife's cousin, my cousin, it was her birthday and she wanted to go out to dinner um, and we're very close with them. And she actually listened to a couple of the shows, which uh, made me uncomfortable, but I was like, why should I be uncomfortable? You know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so she's on a diet and we even got a babysitter. That was, that's the no, big news. You guys don't do that at all. It's too no, often. We got a babysitter. Yeah. And so it was just a, just the adults and we were ordering drinks you know, at that moment where we're ordering drinks and I'm, of course I'm always, you know, and I noticed that she ordered non-alcoholic and uh, I think her husband uh, also ordered one and I was like, huh. And then the conversation started to roll mm-hmm. and she started talking about her new diet and how it involves no alcohol. It's like the whole 30 or something. Uh, I don't know. Some keto thing. Something like that. Yeah. But what she said was it had been 16 or 18 days and she was talking about like, wow, I've never felt so clear. Mm. I feel she was just like, she discovered, maybe was aware of it for the first time, like, wow, this feels great. Why would I ever want to drink again? And she was just talking about it. And I, of course, carefully interject things. Yeah. You know, I don't get on a pedestal and start preaching. No, you know no, you're I mean? really very and, subtle, like a, like a good psychotherapist. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And, um, and I'm just sort of probing, getting her talking more. And I was really, really amazed because um, 
I've never, I don't know, I never knew her to be like thinking about that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and uh, I, it was really cool just to hear her, the wheels started turning, you know, and she started like, it's like being removed from the matrix, you know? Yeah. It's like, you know, once you realize that you're being lied to, that, that this is, you know, bad for you, that it is not a good thing. Um, it, it was just amazing to see that. And that got us talking, because she knows I'm in recovery. Yeah. Because she was there before and, mm-hmm. and, you know, was good friends with my wife, so she heard everything. And uh, besides that, her um, her mother, my Aunt Janet, whom I loved very, very much, and we all miss her. Uh, she passed away a few years ago uh, from cancer. Wow. Uh, I think it was cancer, maybe um, in any case. Uh, and she was actually a recovered alcoholic. So I got to know her as in the family as, you know, Aunt Janet who doesn't drink. Right. And so I would periodically, as I was trying to get, you know, sober, I would talk to her. And I was just always marveled at her resolve and how, how she recovered. And I would always talk to her. And so now that my cousin now is starting to talk about it, the, the family history started to come up. And she started to talk about how she's dealing with this with her children. Yeah. You know, and it brought up this very, very interesting topic of do we talk to our children or how do we talk to our children about your family history mm. kind of like this runs in the family mm-hmm. and like how do you do that and what do you divulge but it was interesting hearing like a normie quote unquote kind of coming to these same realizations yeah i can tell you how not to do it yeah how we did it with our 17 year old who at the time was 14 and we told him that uh addiction runs in the family like his father had some you know issues mm. and uh, all this and uh that just seemed to make him want to go out and do it more. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So, uh, but you didn't start young enough, maybe. I don't know. They're saying you got to start like ten years old. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, the problem with the first kid is. Yep. <laughs> I'm having that same. You're just experimenting, issue. you know, and you're and if it doesn't work, I know it sucks for him. But yep. you can at least it work. It'll work on the next one, you know. Yeah, I'm um, living with that now. Um, it's hard not to beat yourself up over those mistakes too. But it's also in this book I'm reading called The Addiction Inoculation, which I would love to do an episode. That sounds like a great book. It's about um, how do you talk to your kids about addiction? How do you prevent them? How do you inoculate them from uh, going down that same path? You know, I heard an expression once that was like, um, you know, it's hard to raise kids because you're preparing them for a world that no longer exists. Um, Wow. You know, because the world that you lived in is not the world of today. Right. And so there's there's pluses and there's minuses, right? Because today, it seems like less kids are drinking, you know. Um, you know, and, and the sober lifestyle is something that is more acceptable now than it was when you and I were growing up. Absolutely. When I was growing up in the early to mid-80s, everybody was doing drugs and drinking. Everybody. There was just nobody who was, there was no sober lifestyle. No. To, you were a square. You were a square. Um, of course, those people are all doctors treating like alcoholics now. But, <laughs> okay. uh, but now, like, it seems like you, you know, there are avenues that you can go down as a kid that don't involve getting involved in substance abuse. Right. Sober is the new black. So I have been trying to um, talk to Ben. I mean, Ben knows that I don't drink alcohol or don't do anything. And I'm always talking to him about, you know, why you shouldn't do this and how dangerous this is and whatever. But you really have to be careful not to overdo it. Right. Because if you oversell, 
you know, yep. then they're going to, they're, they're, they're going to do it. They're going to lump that thing along with the other things that they're going to ignore when they turn 14. Right. right. You know, so it, it's really tough, man. It is. And one of the ways uh, I'm doing it with Noah and uh, I love being validated when I read a book about how I'm doing something about my parenting. I'm like, I do that. Of course, not all of it. But this idea of I am just being very honest with him about, you know, I, I don't get into the details of I did this, I did that, mm-hmm. you know, but just talking openly, you know, he knows I don't drink and it, it brings up questions, you know, which I'm honest with him as possible about yeah. without the gory details. And I think by having this honest uh, discourse back and forth that I'm developing a rapport with him where he can tell me anything and he can trust that what I'm saying to him isn't just a scare tactic. Right. I'm not just saying it to get him to do something I don't want him to do. It's explaining like, why, why isn't it uh, something to, you know, something you want to do? Like, why, why shouldn't you drink? Uh, and that sort of thing without the finger wagging and without the pedantic, you know, right. all of that. So I've um, learned that that is completely ineffective. Completely. Yeah. You have to get them talking to you um, you know, and having honest discussions and, but it's a delicate balance. Like, uh, I don't know if I would really want him to listen to the show. Um, mm, yeah, but, no. um, <laughs> no. so that's a delicate balance and monsters out there. Tell us how you talk to your kids. Uh, or if you do at all, uh, Mike R at middleagesrecovery.com. Annie Grace had a really good, um, you know how she does like those little listener question and answer things every yeah. week? She had a really good one a couple weeks ago about this very topic. And I would urge you folks to go back and listen to it because she starts with the acknowledgement that it doesn't, you can say anything to your kids, you can tell them anything, but they're just going to do what they, they want. Right. <laughs> you know, the question is, how do you set it up yeah. so that what they want is what's good for them? Yeah. And that's the hard part. Oh, right? man. And, uh, Parenting is so crazy, man. It is. Um, so what are we doing now? Well... Are we going to go into the thing? All right. You want to get into the main topic? I had some other things on here that I wanted to talk already about. at 50 minutes. All right. All right. But first, let me transition with a song. Okay. Okay. I would just like to uh, take this moment to um, bid adieu to Mr. Meatloaf. Who passed away no. last night at the age of 74 years old. What? Yes. Oh, my God. And I think that's about all that I can play without God. getting shut down by the uh, DCMA. Yeah. Um, I didn't hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Sad. He was in a lot of movies. You know that? In Rocky Horror. He was in a bunch the of other t- Tenacious D, The Pit yeah. of Destiny. Yep. Yep. Which is a big one. Don't, not sure why he passed away. Uh, I mean, he was 74 and apparently not in good health for several years, but uh, no. I remember uh, rocking out to Mr. Loaf's uh, song. Mr. Loaf. <laughs> <laughs> Paradise by the Dashboard Lights. I, I had this record. Did you have this record as a kid? I mean, I, I wasn't a Meat Loaf fan. Yeah, I mean, it was probably a couple of years. You were probably still too young when this record came out, but it made a big impression uh, in yeah, my peer group. At I the missed time. Meat Loaf and Kiss and things like that. You miss Kiss? Yeah. Oh, fuck, dude. You like Kiss? Love Kiss. Ugh. Really? One of the best concerts I ever saw. Ah, my opinion of your musical tastes just down Listen, a notch. Listen, you have to take Kiss for what they are. You cannot be looking Rock for serious. Yes, you cannot be looking for serious, well-played music. It is a show. It is like Broadway. If you could and if you be, take them at that level, then they are spectacular. It's like like watching WWE. Um, who, if you exactly, were, if they're you wrestling. Were, they're rock and roll wrestling. Rock and roll that wrestlers. is what they are. Now, the question for all Kiss fans is which. 
member of KISS are you? Are you Ace Freely? Are you Gene Simmons? Are you Peter Chris? Who are you if you're putting yourself in KISS? Are you asking me? Yeah. Because um, you're a KISS fan. I'm much more of an Ace Frehley type. Ace Frehley. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, with that, I think we're going to move on to the main topic of the show. Now, I'm finally. not sure what benefit you got out of being a drunk pimp. <laughs> so today we're talking about The Anonymous People, uh, which is directed by Greg Williams. Uh, the Anonymous People is a feature documentary film about the 23.5 million Americans living in long-term recovery from alcohol and other drug addiction, deeply entrenched social stigma and mass participation in widely successful anonymous 12-step groups have been kept, have kept recovery voices silent and faces hidden for decades. Uh, the vacuum created by the silence has been filled by sensational mass media depictions of addiction that continue to perpetuate a lurid public fascination mm. with the dysfunctional side of what is a preventable and treatable health condition. So we were just talking about how much we loved um, those, those books, those memoirs. Right. Is that part of the lurid fascination by, you know, those the stories of dark, depraved drug use? That's that's a great question, and it's something that that we should think about. Like, and I've heard this talked about before. When are these movies and these documentaries? When do they stop, or when do they start becoming? Um, you know. Uh, what's the word? When when you're sensationalizing it and using it mm-hmm. for just entertainment. Like, where is the line? Because I watch uh, Intervention religiously. Right. And the question is, why do I watch it? Is it because I want to see people worse off than I am? You know? Well, there's a bit of schadenfreude. I, sure. I, yeah. I, I expect, you know, in some of that. Um, you know, I would like to think that maybe you watch it for more professional reasons. Um, but I, I, frankly, I found celebrity rehab to be disgusting. Um, I think exploiting people who are exploitative. That's the word. Yes, I was looking for. Thank uh, you. you know, at the bottom of their, you know, addictions who are completely incapable of consenting to, to appearing on something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, this came up actually, uh, Tracy, uh, Helton, who is a, um, she's the author of the big fix and she was in, um, uh, one of the first documentaries of this kind, I think it was called black tar heroin mm-hmm. and then a subtitle. And when she was very young, she was one of the uh, the addicts that was followed around, and you know. And now she's a huge advocate for harm reduction, mm-hmm. and, and uh, she's she's a big name in the industry. And she's she actually said she would come on the show, um, and she mentioned feeling exploited by her uh, original appearance. And so yeah. she's also talked about this. This is. You know, something that um, we should think about, you know, like at what point is it instructive? At what point is it exploitation? I, I don't know. I don't feel like I can su- support that. It, it's, it would be as if you took a bunch of people with, uh, you know, mental health problems, put them in front of a camera and made them perform like trained seals. I mean, I watch like Gary, the Gary Busey. Isn't that like the real world? Isn't yeah, real world uh, Malibu drug addiction? Right. You know, like I don't know. I don't see any socially redeeming value in that. But you know, I guess Doctor Drew feels differently. Or yeah. Or um, wait, is it Doctor? Is it Drew or Phil? Doctor Drew Pinsky. See, I don't. I don't know who is involved in that. But now, anyway, go ahead. You, you, were, I interrupt you in the middle yes. of reading your. Well, thing. this, this is this topic that that this movie covers is vast. So. What I wanted to try and do is sort of encapsulate 
you know, in a digestible portion, mm-hmm. what exactly this movie is getting at and, and what is the real, because there's lots of details in here and we could go down so many different paths. But the most important thing is that um, it's about anonymity in uh, recovery and how it affects our advocacy. Um, and so it's really kind of about people in recovery coming out of the shadows and it's encouraging people to say, you know, because there's anonymity as a spiritual principle. And so a lot of people who are in recovery, because the biggest recovery program is AA, you know, that they're trained to believe that if they break their anonymity, they are violating a sacrosanct tradition of their recovery. Hmm. And so this is a movie that is trying to put light on us uh, people in recovery as a voting block mm-hmm. in order to you know advocate to make aware and to ultimately change public policy when it comes to uh, addiction treatment right and uh, you know it begins by going back in history uh, to some degree it traces a little bit of the rise of, of AA and the, the traditions and so forth but then it what I found fascinating is that the history of addiction treatment in this country was going along swimmingly. Um, you know, there were public Hollywood actors who were coming out. There were congressional um, hearings. People were testifying in front of Congress, uh, admitting to their alcohol problems, admitting to their drug addictions, and money was being appropriated for treatment and everything. And then in 1980, everything just stopped. Yeah, well, before you go on to okay. 1980, sorry. So you glossed over a very important big oh, part of this, sorry. Uh, of the documentary. Now, what what Mike was talking about was something called Operation Understanding. Yes, that's it. And um, and it was really sort of a reaction to the anonymity factor of AA. And it was um, in the 60s. It was like a coming out party, and it was the first. They had the first major press conference uh, with the Senate. Uh, in the 60s, and, um, and they really got all of these actors, uh, like Buzz Aldrin. Um, <laughs> well, he, he was the guy that walked on the moon. William Daniel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's not an actor. Uh, Dick Van Dyke, Senator Harold Hughes. I mean, if you believe that they faked the moon landing, then he is an actor, <laughs> right? Um, one of the main, one of the most interesting parts was um, they had Bill Wilson's sponsor, Marty Mann. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and this is what I wanted to get to. She was really one of the first people to sort of say, this anonymity is killing us. Mm-hmm. It's killing us. She came out, uh, and, uh, and she was, uh, Marty Mann was the founder of the National Committee for Education on Alcoholism. And uh, she first c- comes out in the 40s to sort of, you know, change public perception of this. Uh, and they formed this Operation Understanding uh, with uh, with the senator. So they were Howard they were Hughes. essentially like uh, a lobbying organization. It sounds that way. And I, th- they, I to, think they actually said they that they were a lobby organization. Well, they're, they, yeah, that's what they were trying to get. Yeah. they saw. Look, we're not being represented, right? Because uh, pe- because when yeah. they were going to pass some some laws and appropriate some money before they had this this thing in place. Uh, the pushback they got from the senators were, well, addicts are not a vote. They don't vote. It's not a voting yes. block. You know? Yeah, addicts don't vote. Yeah. Um, 
and what they're and then they really got public perception started to appear to change. They mm -hmm. were seeing positive stories on the news. They were seeing other celebrities coming out uh, and all of that. But then, that was weird, though, what? because that was the same time, like the late 60s, the early 70s, when drug use like exploded in this country. So while at the same time you're having like these, the, the social acceptance of people using drugs is much higher than it was ever was in history, you know, you know, you go back to 1960 and people who were smoking pot were looked at as complete deviants and degenerates. You fast forward 10 years and all of a sudden it's like socially acceptable. It's showing up in movies while simultaneously you had the whole, um, the framework of, of people who had alcohol problems and who had drug problems are becoming much more, uh, out in the open, out in public. So it's weird that those two things went along the same track. I thought, well, it, it's sort of, um, that's that perfectly encapsulates the division going on civilly in the United States of America. You had the civil rights movement. You had yeah, you know, hippies. Yeah. I mean, it was all we were a divided country. Um, were <laughs> were yeah are. But the big thing was this culminated this group of celebrities and um, and astronauts. Uh, they were able to through Senator Howard Hughes was a major figurehead of it. He convinced the Senate to allow them to have a committee yes. on addiction. Um, and it was for the Society of Americans for Recovery. Uh, and basically, this was the first time uh, something like this would happen. And you have a senator, not just a Bowery bum, talking about it. In any case, like you said, things seemed to be going swimmingly for the uh, recovery community. People were coming out, people were, you know, changing the, the perception or trying to at least. Mm -hmm. And then comes along Richard Nancy. Nixon. Oh, right. Yeah, it was Nixon, Nixon first. right, yeah, yeah. Which you were about to get to. Um, oh, yeah. I was actually going to start with Nancy Reagan, but uh, Richard Nixon was really responsible for sort of pushing the whole uh, idea of addiction back under the under the carpet, right? I mean, he... He started the war on drugs. He created the uh, the DEA, um, and uh, I mean we can get into the whole racist origins of uh, of the war on drugs, but I, I think that's maybe a topic for another show. Mm. Um, but he Nixon definitely, and who was a drink, big drinker himself, by the way. Oh uh, yeah, a, you know, big drinker. He was famously uh, yeah, <laughs> pretty hopped up. Yeah. Um, but he pathologized um, drug use um, for his own political ends. Yeah, it, it was a case of, you know, the quote-unquote tough on crime. And which, you know, unfortunately, it continued with, you know, other presidents. Uh, you have uh, Ronald Reagan. Well, now, the Reagan Higgins. era is really interesting because... Um, what happened with Carter, though? Carter was... Carter liked Bob Dylan and the Almond yeah. Brothers. Like he was, oh, so he had a respite he was, for a little bit. He was bit. an aberration. Um, um, but they picked up right where uh, Nixon left off. Yeah, the, I uh, mean, the whole Nancy Reagan, I, those of you in the 80s remember that the, the, the entirety of drug education program was Nancy Reagan telling everyone to just say no. Uh, and of course, that was the time when I became addicted to crack, <laughs> right during the middle of the Reagan administration, which... You know, and it was crazy because, you know, I was I was living in the Bronx at the time and it was the epicenter of the crack epidemic in New York City, you know, gang wars every night, gunshots. I was roaming around the streets and uh, we, you know, Nancy Reagan was openly mocked by dealers and uh, users alike, 
you know. Yeah, Nancy Reagan gets such a bad rap. And um, let me just say that I have heard addicts in recovery rooms and outpatient and inpatient, they really latch on to uh, this Nancy Reagan's Just Say No as like the reason why things went to shit. And the reason, I mean, I remember this this one really rough um, addict who was in recovery with me. I mean, she had really been through it and she was a little bit older. And one time in a group, she just went on and on about, she was like, fuck Nancy Reagan. I'm like, what? I'm like, <laughs> seriously, fuck Nancy Reagan. But that was the, like the first thing yeah. she said. And, you know, the truth is, it was less Nancy Reagan and her media blitz, which, yes, is absurd. But it was more like what was going on with the policy. You had the president of the United States saying, you know, he was saying zero tolerance. Yes, they increased, they increased the, the criminal penalties for using. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you got caught with a certain amount of crack versus a certain, the same amount of, of powdered cocaine, the sentences were disproportionately higher. And crack was looked at as a, uh, you know, a drug that the you know, poor people and African-Americans used, uh, you know, as opposed to cocaine. I mean, if a, if a white person got caught with crack, it was called freebase. But if you got caught, if you were black and you got caught with crack, it was called crack. And I can tell you from firsthand experience, the number of times that I was stopped by the police in the, in the Bronx with uh, a runner or a dealer, and I always got to go home, always. The right. dealer, always arrested. It was never even a question. They would like they sent me home, and they arrested the dealer. And the dealer was always black or brown, and yeah. you know. So I don't tell me there's there's no racism in policing. And well, <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean that's baked in. But like at least Nancy Reagan was trying to do something, some positive. Now it was misguided. Well, at the same time, she was throwing addicts in prison. Well, her, her husband, husband, was. Right. right? So we're putting it. Poor Nancy Reagan. She's just she's looking at what her husband's doing and is like, oh, I better do something loving, do something helpful. And of course, it wasn't helpful. Meanwhile, the CIA was running cocaine, you know, selling drugs to fund uh, Nicaraguan, you know, the war in Nicaragua and El Salvador. So, I mean, the whole thing was a fucking farce. <laughs> yeah. you know? And then and then Bush the first was elected and he just continues it. Yeah. Well, what was that? They had his quote in Caught. the movie where he was he was like, if you are using, you are just as guilty as a as a yes. as a dealer or something, and he was just throwing users wholesale in prison, like something yeah. like thirty percent of, of of federal prisons were full of drug users. Exactly, and he he made a famous statement. He said, "You will be caught, prosecuted, and punished." And you know that was like, <laughs> "Take me to your leader." Take me to your leader. <laughs> uh, and and so the the rhetoric was strong against. Um, against addicts and against dealers. Um, and what it did was it really, you know, kind of amped up, you know, through the media's depictions of, of drug users as, you know, poor African-American crazed mm -hmm. criminals, um, you know, and it really got us up in a, in a tizzy, you could say. And so there's less well, it, chance it, of getting any kind of... Um, it elevated the stigma. You know, it forced it forced addicts underground because they didn't want to be identified in society at large at the risk of, you know, risk to their professional careers and their very freedom. Um, yeah, yeah. You know. It's uh, and so that was a real downturn, uh, and, and we're still feeling the effects of all of this. So I want to bring this back to what about anonymous? This is all about anonymous people and how they think anonymity is holding us back and it's keeping us uh, from getting policy changed. I think they said something like, uh, in order to change public policy, 
you have to change public perception. Yeah. And so what this new group uh, is trying to, the change they're trying to affect is, uh, is the way people perceive addicts and recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly... I had a quote, you know. Oh, do you? Let's hear yeah, the I quote. I had a quote from Joe Schrank. Yes, th- I had that quote too. You do. Who's Joe Schrank? Joe Schrank is the founder of The Fix uh, magazine. Uh, he is a personality. He's a, a social worker. He works in recovery. He's very involved in the community. Uh, he's a, a harm reduction advocate. He's also, he says, uh, a member of recovery groups. And um, he's just one of the leading voices. So this movie came out what year? 2013? Yes. Okay. So here's Joe Schrank in 2013. I never got the anonymity thing. Like, I, never, I really never did. I always thought, well, but we're all, there's 30 of us standing in front of a church smoking. Like, who, what secret is this? <laughs> You're told as a basic tenant of 12-step life. You're as sick as your secrets. But live the secretive life. Yeah, I yeah. love that quote. He, I mean, he makes some really great points. Um, and that kind of goes back to, I feel like they're making AA the scapegoat. Uh, they talk about anonymity was important, uh, and, but it's been misinterpreted and misused. And there's a great quote here. Um, there are people who are in recovery but are deeply ashamed because of social sig- stigmas. There are a number of those individuals who hide behind big rhetoric about anonymity as a spiritual tradition, but the bottom line is they are ashamed, um, which is a very strong statement. I can't remember the guy's name who said that in the movie. Well, uh, wait a minute now. Yeah. Ashamed. Yeah. Ashamed of what? Ashamed of that they're an addict. And Well, okay, maybe, or maybe they're just engaging in self-preservation uh, on the level of, you know, career or... Um, you know, I mean, because because the stigma is so large in society. Um, right, so how do we change that without breaking our anonymity? And not to well, say there, everybody's there's lots of ways. It. I mean, I mean, we, I think we were they were doing it back in the early '70s when they got the Senate panel going and they got people talking, and and they were doing it from from a um, a media perspective. But to ask every person who stays anonymous about their recovery to become sort of like uh, a recovery Rosa Parks is I think asking too much of people. I mean, I, I certainly am not going to go waving my recovery banner around at my job. I would get fired. And so I'm not doing it. Is that, they could <laughs> fire you? I mean, I mean, I, sure they could, cause you're not a protected class. I mean, there's no, there's no protection for addicts. There's no, nothing written into the law that protects uh, you from being fired because your company thinks you may become a liability in the future. Right. I believe in anonymity um, and I understand it. And of course, when I first started getting, into the rooms of recovery, it was extremely important to me that there was this veil of anonymity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on the one hand, I get it and I support it and I'm happy that there's anonymous groups. I think what happens is um, in, they, they put it out there as anonymity, as a spiritual foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Tradition 12 is anonymity and it says anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles above personalities. A hallmark Shit. of 12-step recovery programs is the offer of anonymity to participants. Shit, am I agreeing with AA about something? A little bit, because people think they will violate tradition. Traditions are how the program stays together and functions outside the program to recover. Uh, but it's more of an operating manual for meetings. Yeah, I don't, I, don't think, I don't think what they're saying in there is that you have to be 
anonymous. I but, mean, yeah, I think it's. I think ultimately, it's the choice of the individual. Well, but there's there's the sense when you're a member of AA that these are that, that that's not the idea. So people are misusing it and misinterpreting, and that's kind of the point of what Joe Schrank is saying, and, and what they're saying in the documentary is we have to rethink what it means, what this tradition of anonymity really means. Does it really prevent me from saying anything to anyone in public about uh, recovery or that fact that I'm in recovery? Okay, well, you know what, that's fair because because the the tradition, as I recall it from my time, my lengthy time in AA, yeah. is that you need to um, stay anonymous to the level of books, films, yeah. and media, right? Or something along those lines. Right. Those, that is the exact environment that you should not remain anonymous if you're if you are if you are interested in being an activist, I suppose the um, the, the idea, and this is an important point, um, and I've heard this before. Like people ask, why do, do does like let's say Johnny Depp, who I don't know if he's in recovery. I'm just for example, like why can't Johnny Depp come out and say I'm a member of AA and I'm recovered? The reason uh, is a good one, and it's that. If someone of that level of fame comes out as a member of AA mm-hmm. and then spectacularly fails, mm-hmm. it speaks for the entire group. So, you know, on that level, so that's why. That's uh, sort of a tacit admission that your plan is not all that effective, is it? Right. Well, the idea is that we want, that's why we're changing the language. Uh, this new group that, um, that the, the movie is, is really about is trying to change the language uh, of recovery. That's why I said, my name is Nat. I'm a person in long-term recovery. They really feel like if we change the language, if we make people in recovery feel more comfortable coming out of their shell, leaving their church basement, and speaking, you know, that this will help us advance. You know... In a way, I see this as a very sort of 2013 problem because, <laughs> I mean, why, I mean, you're assuming that AA is like where all of the, the push towards destigmatizing uh, addiction is coming from. And in fact, the P- AA is actually the, the least of the things that you need to worry about. I mean, most people who recover from drug and alcohol addiction do it outside of a program. Um, so why, why are we looking to AA's tradition of anonymity as something that is like controlling the conversation? I have an answer to that. Okay. The reason, (laughs) the reason is this, and you make a good point, but here, here's, here's the answer. The answer is, as we've discussed on our show, um, AA is ubiquitous. Still? Still. You still Mm. go to courts. Uh, maybe in New York, we have one, you know, meeting for smart recovery, like AA is ubiquitous. The four or five rehabs I went to in the last 10 years, all of them started with the first three steps. They would do the first three steps with you. Okay. You would go to an AA meeting every single day and then an NA meeting. So the problem is almost everyone who goes through the system which because of the overbearing criminal justice, you know, system against drugs and addicts, you will come in contact probably first with the steps, someone who is in AA. And additionally, almost everybody I met, clinicians, um, not always doctors, but were AA members, mm. kind of surreptitiously pushing AA because, of course, they believed it was very good and maybe it really was. So because of that, a lot of people have it in their heads, the first things they learned in recovery, which was like anonymity, anonymity, anonymity. Mm. And it's so because of that, 
I think even though there are so many more options today, it's still in the collective consciousness. Well, maybe what needs to be done is a movement needs to be built outside of AA. <gasps> yes. In fact, in <laughs> fact, there is one. That did I just they, feed you a line? Yeah, you did. Okay. Thank you, God. Um, <laughs> so the, the current group that they talk about uh, is called uh, the Faces and Voices of Recovery, which is sort of where the documentary ends up going to talk about, because they present the problem, they, they do the history, the problem, and now here's how we're trying to solve it. And so this is a group of, uh, of like senators uh, and people of renown uh, and also people that are just in recovery. And they are making an effort to change basically the language of recovery. They sort of made this their main yes. like mission. Like, change the language of recovery. I right. agree. And they have classes where they're educating people on how to talk about uh, the fact that they're um, in recovery. And in fact, a uh, very famous um, recovered person is Tom Coderre, who is a former senator. Uh, is this the guy from Michigan? The yes. young guy who was the crackhead? He, he like very publicly, he was one of the, he was the youngest senator or something in Michigan history, mm. something along those lines. And then he very publicly, um, you know, got in trouble. Yes, yes. Used crack and all of that. Yes. So this is him coming back to life uh, in public, you know, in public policy. And he's basically an advocate for this faces and voices of recovery. Uh, but it goes from the tradition of Senator Hughes, what he did in the 60s. And they're really trying to reclaim that sort of public awareness mm. and get people talking about, you know, uh, about the fact that they're in recovery. And they t- they're teaching people how to, how to speak to other people, you know, and they talk about disclosure, not UFO disclosure, mm-hmm. but disclosing to people in your life. Uh, and this is something I think we all kind of struggle with. Like once you finally get sober... And it's a big part of your life. You know, you have an opportunity to speak to other people. Do you have an obligation or is it an opportunity? I don't know. Because I don't, I don't think you are obligated to no. disclose anything to anyone. No. But um, I don't know. I feel like it's my responsibility, but that's on me. Like, I think it's my responsibility to talk to people. I think it's healthy for you, you know? Right. I think, like, it's healthy for me and you to do this podcast. Yep. I don't know if it would be healthy for me to go into my place of place of work and, you know, put myself out there the, uh, to help other employees because that would, you know, potentially cause me to lose the confidence of my management or my job. Well, I think that the natural progression of recovering from an addiction is to talk to other people. I mean, it's part of uh, the AA program and a lot of programs is there's a portion of spreading the message or helping another addict because the, the fact is that, um, you know, more than two thirds of families have been touched by uh, addiction in sure. America. Um, and, you know, nobody is untouched by this. Uh, and uh, Joe Schrank also, who I keep quoting here, makes a very good point. He starts to think of the comparison between the AIDS epidemic. Right. To the way that um, to to the way that addiction is treated, and there was also another uh, portion of the documentary where they're talking about how cancer treatment is dealt with in America. Um, uh, this uh, cancer survivor was speaking uh, on the show, and she basically says, "I was blown away when I, you know, after my cancer treatment, and mm-hmm. I was in remission. Um, they at least." 
you know, they have an aftercare program. Yes, huge support systems for cancer patients. And uh, and in, in recovery, all they do is, um, you know, here's a chip, and they say, you graduated. Like, this is an insanity. Do, you, do they? Yes. Or, or, I mean, is the aftercare program just continuing to go to meetings? Well, they, they gently suggest that, but they do give you, you know, they not all programs do this, but uh, I definitely graduated, quote-unquote, from a couple of programs, and how, there's no real aftercare unless you did it yourself. What? How, how long did it take you to graduate from the from the program? Which one? I mean, <laughs> I mean, did they? What did they do? Did they shake your hand and they say, "Good luck, son"? Yeah, the world is your oyster now. Some of them gave me a coin. A couple of them gave me an actual certificate. You have a ceremony. They and this is not AA though, right? You're talking about like it's an AA based uh, outpatient program or oh, okay, so program. so so a discrete program okay yeah. you're done now you can go into your life and and you know put these principles to work in all of your affairs so to speak right mm-hmm. um and uh but a, a lot of a lot of people are coming out you know because of uh this new group Kristen johnson who's a famous uh comedian the author of uh guts uh, oh, yeah, she, I got a quote from her too if you want yeah to she it. well she was coming out and talking about her addiction recovery Want to hear it? Yeah, what did she say? Whether we want to admit this or not, this is our black plague. A terrible scourge that is just as deadly as cancer or AIDS. It is destroying people by the untold millions. And I believe without a shadow of a doubt that the shame and secrecy that shroud this disease are just as deadly as the disease itself. It's all of our problems. I mean, what do you think of that? I know that you're kind of, sounds like you're on the fence about whether anonymity is something that we should encourage anybody to do or not do. I think it's a highly individualized decision, and I don't think everybody is cut out to be an activist. Agreed. I think what the, the main takeaway, because we're going to do, what do we take away from this? Um, I highly recommend everybody watch this it's documentary. Good, it's a good documentary. I mean... I don't feel like we're even remotely covered it in its entirety. I'm trying to get the gist of it. Uh, it brings up a lot of interesting points. It goes on to talk about the criminal justice system uh, and all of that. But it all comes down to public perception. And how do we as recovering people at least help? And, and if you're not going to go be an advocate, Mike, if you're not going to go march on Washington. You could start a podcast. You could do all kinds of stuff. You, you can still do your part by changing the way you're messaging. When you're talking to people, maybe don't uh, say, I'm a junkie, you know, unless hmm. this is empowering to you somehow. But the idea is to change the perception. We have to talk about it uh, in a different way. And like, I'm a person in long-term recovery, not, I'm a junkie, I'm an alcoholic. Well, I mean, if you look at the... LGBT movement, they reclaim the word queer and that kind of thing. And it's it's sort of like you defuse the the rancor that goes into that word by reclaiming it to yourself. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that, but I, I understand the the logic behind it. I don't know, because, uh, you know, like Amy Dresner's book, and she was just talking about this on her show about, they were talking about language. Her book's called Junkie? My Fair My Junkie. My favorite fair junkie, that's right. You know, so while she agreed that, yes, you know, it's best to use um, terminology that isn't quite so, you know, damning, you know, junkie, addict, you know, it's to try and, try and spread a, a more complete 
uh, message about we're just people, people in recovery. Well, also not above using the term to sell a few books. Right. Well, that's what she was saying. She said, well, if I call myself a junkie, that's one thing. But if um, a senator... Appealing to the purient interest of the public at large who likes to read about junkies. Well, yeah. Okay. But (laughs) if it's when someone is calling you a junkie, you know, that's where we're going on the line. And we have to start sort of start changing that language. And So if you're calling yourself a junkie, don't be pissed off if other people call you a junkie with a different background behind the word as they're saying it in your face. So finally, I want to say that everybody should get out there, march on Washington. In fact, (laughs) when I was uh, an outpatient uh, several years ago, um, when I first learned about this documentary, my uh, Dawn, who was the, uh, my therapist, she actually was doing a field trip Mm -hmm. with the people at the uh, outpatient to, they were going to a march to march as, you know, uh, people in long-term recovery and to really make a change. And listen, no, everybody doesn't have to be an activist, but I think it is something worth considering. Like, why are you anonymous? And could you better your own recovery by disclosing to a loved one? Or how could you improve your chances of staying sober by talking to someone else and telling them about your story? And you never know, as you're finding out now, people are coming out of the woodwork mm-hmm. that you, you, know, you didn't even realize had a problem. And then so by being out there, you're affecting that change in other people. And, uh, and I think that is something worth thinking about. Mm-hmm. I think you need to set your own parameters for what level that you're fe- you feel comfortable with. Agreed. And, you know, if, uh, if there's advocacy work to be done, it, it can be done without you having to out yourself to your company you work for. I don't think that's the, things are necessarily uh, mutually exclusive. I think you can work behind the scenes. You can do a podcast. You can, there's a whole, whole bunch of different ways to change people's perceptions of people who have substance abuse issues. Agreed. And I want everybody out there. How do you, uh, how do you think we should, you know, proceed with that? Do you, are you anonymous? How do you self-disclose? Tell us what you think about the documentary. It's called the anonymous people, uh, right? Mike R at middleagesrecovery.com and tell us what you think. And I think there's value to be you can be different levels of disclosure in different places in your life, I think. Absolutely. I think, like, for example, I did that lawyer panel a couple of weeks ago, used my real name. Um, you wouldn't have done that a year ago. I wouldn't have done that a year ago, but I, but I felt that if people um, are watching that, if they're, in, if they're clicking on a video about their relationship with alcohol, there's a reason for that, and I want to make myself available to them. Uh, it's very different for me doing that actually at my place of work. So anyway. Okay. All and right. I think we need to take a break and we'll be right back after these words. Okay. Okay. And we're back. And we're back. Um, yeah. Ugh. Never mind. Uh, we're back. We're back. Um, man, uh, I really I really feel like I didn't like talk about that documentary the way I wanted to. I don't know. I, I feel so like when I watch that documentary, I just I want to go in so many different directions. 
And uh, but I think we think maybe we encapsulated uh, the main issues. Um, I'm a little my my head is everywhere today. In the middle of recording earlier, I got a call from the school. Oh yeah, it was my son. I was you know I got all nervous. I like oh my god, what happened? It turns out, of course, I didn't see his texts because we we're doing the show and <laughs> do not disturb. And it was nothing. It was. He left his science project at home, but uh, and then my outlines all over the place. The it's okay. It's okay, Nat. It's fine. It's fine. I don't it's, know. We'll, we'll be all right. I guess the, I just the, feel strongly about that documentary. I remember, you know, getting those surprise phone calls is always great. I remember um, when I lived in Staten Island before, you know, I came out here. Like, uh, you know, I I, uh, I had Jack. It was just the two of us and uh, and, a, and a friend of mine who was staying with us for a while. And uh, in the middle of the night, he knocks on my bedroom door and he goes, Mike. The landlord is downstairs with the police. <laughs> things you don't want to hear in the middle of the night. And I'm, I'm trying to think, like, what could I have possibly done? Yeah. What, what specter from my past has come back to haunt me? But it turned out somebody was breaking into my car. So Anyway, so my apologies if I was a little scattered on that last uh, thing. But I, I really love that documentary. Um, I've been wanting to, to cover it for a long time. And I uh, hope I did it justice. But please go out and watch it. And now it's time for... For recovery in the news. Yeah! <laughs> All right! Recovery in the news. Recovery in the news. Recovery in the news. Never fails to put you in a better mood, right? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, sorry about that. The board, I'm like, I, fig- I figured out how to add sounds to like additional. Of- things like buttons yeah. so uh, oh you can like cycle through it yeah oh, that's dangerous yeah, but it is dangerous it's also funny so you have to change you know? the uh, the sound banks and everything like yeah, that. yeah i know it's um, really annoying but um yeah listen to my band go to uh <laughs> spotify.com oh yeah k-y-n-d-u-v-m-e and check out uh the band that uh does our intro song it's one of mine yes so. it's excellent the rest of the album is great too shameless plug Recovering the news. Uh, so we're at recovering the news. Um, recovering the news. Recovering yeah. the news. I'm is, tired of explaining yes, why I it's don't from, drink. It's from The Cut. Yeah. Thecut.com, which is like an online magazine. Uh, January 19th. I'm tired of explaining why I don't drink. Uh, it's a personal essay uh, written by a, a, a female author who uh, opens by saying that her last uh, drink occurred just like her first in a crowded room surrounded by people she wanted to like and be liked by, right? Yeah, fitting in, peer pressure, right. all of that stuff. Uh, last April, I went to a party in the West Village surrounded by beautiful, shiny people. Shiny people in the West <laughs> Village. <laughs> they glow. Uh, I felt dull and alone. Nursing a drink like everyone else, I just wanted to go home. That night, I realized something I had ignored for a long time. Social drinking did not make me social. It made me want to crawl into a hole. Mm. Social, interesting, interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I identified with this because, you know, when I, um, you know, I quit, quitting is so easy. I've done it a hundred times. Right. And so a few times when I would right. quit, it would be after a night like that, where I would be like, you know, this is not fun. It's making me feel empty and dead inside. So, um, maybe I should do something about that. But, um, so anyway, so she decides to quit drinking and, and then realized that she doesn't know how to talk about it because uh, of all the things she anticipated would happen when she stopped, she didn't expect to need talking points because people were always so curious and befuddled 
at one of their peers uh, deciding to quit drinking. So she goes along in the article talking about uh, alcohol use disorder affecting 14 million Americans and one in six uh, 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 Americans binge drink and so forth. But um, she's not uh, comfortable with uh, defining herself as an alcoholic. And this is something that we've talked about before about labels, right? And uh, we've also talked uh, about it because it, it sort of plays into anonymity too. So um, she then talks a little bit about AA um, and says, uh, but for as, as many people who have found help in AA, I wonder how many people the phrase, hi, I'm so-and-so and, and I'm an alcoholic, has kept, uh, kept from seeking help, mm. right? Uh, and she says, because I didn't see myself in, a, in the cultural representation of what an alcoholic looks like for a long time, I didn't imagine I'd stop drinking completely or think that I should. Um, yeah, back to the language. I mean, this goes right to the documentary. It does. How we talk about, how we disclose to our loved ones uh, or to just people like, you know, someone who's you work with that you're trying to like get in front of, you know, hey, we got to get that drink. Yeah. Um, you know, in the early months of sobriety, uh, she considered going to AA because she was desperate to find a community of non-drinkers. Uh-huh. Right? But... It seemed like that was the only option as a young woman living in New York City. Uh, Which is amazing because New York City, you think there should be a, a zillion, right? There should right. be a smart recovery meeting on every corner. But uh, she felt a strong aversion to introducing herself as an alcoholic because it felt counterintuitive. Here I was not drinking a sip of alcohol, and now I was supposed to take on this label? I had stopped drinking because I didn't want to be defined by my relationship to alcohol. Saying the greeting felt like moving backwards, further anchoring who I am to the person I was. Interesting. So, is it healthy mentally for you to fix yourself as an alcoholic or a sufferer of a substance abuse disorder? You know, Does that keep you from moving on? Um, I, I have some thoughts about this. Uh, this is something I've been struggling with. I've heard it debated. Um, am I always an alcoholic? Um, it, you know, which is why there's so much debate over the word recovered, mm -hmm. which is used over 20 times in the big book. A recovered is part of the program because, uh, but a lot of people have kind of gone down this road where like, if you say I'm recovered, this like people get annoyed, it feels very threatening to them because yes. they don't feel like they're recovered or maybe their idea of the word recovered means like you're cured forever and you can drink casually, which is mm. not what it means. No. To be recovered is just to not no longer suffer the symptoms of like it's, craving uh, and impulse. Well, it's to make alcohol your drug of choice a small and insignificant part of your life such that it, you, you don't really consider it. Right. So it seems like a death sentence. You know, all of a sudden you've got this chronic fatal disease forever. And there's no way out. And now it, it's, it's so important. And it took me a long time to understand this, that no, it, that's not what it means. You know, I do recovery now because it helps my whole life. I mean, it's a good thing. I don't feel trapped. I feel liberated. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't love the word alcoholic. I don't love the word addict. It does feel limiting to me. But I don't ever want to forget from whence I came. I don't want to ever think I've got it licked because just like you said before mm -hmm. you get complacent then that bottle of wine yes it, it creeps in on you because it's so deeply ingrained in your psyche from years and years of brainwashing from the media and family events and 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 everything like that so I don't know I so, am down the line on this 
Yeah, and maybe because she's, I mean, from what I can gather from reading this, that she has less than a year of sobriety, but um, so maybe she just hasn't reached that point yet. But uh, I, it did get me to think a little bit because she was looking for the right word to explain her relationship to alcohol and she couldn't find them because um, she wasn't sure if she had stopped drinking long enough to call herself sober. Um, sober curious works in the beginning, but not when you figure that you're done drinking for good. Non-drinker, she she posits, was the most accurate term, and, and I underline this, but it felt silly to define myself but by what I am not. Yeah. Um, so it's defining yourself with a negative. I don't know. All of this stuff is just tools to help you not drink anymore. That's what I see. <laughs> yeah. I think all of these different, you know, all of these different things we do, the words we use, uh, it's just helping us have tools. And like the, the best thing is you can choose what tools you want. Like my tool for uh, when I get a craving is to call my recovery partner, to tell my uh, wife, you know, I have tools. And if, and if it helps you to say to someone, I'm an alcoholic, and that helps you get a handle on staying sober, then I think more power to you, but don't put your shit on me. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, um, I mean, really, it's whatever works, right? Um, but, uh, but, you know, it's interesting as a young woman in New York City, uh, you know, when I was a young guy in New York City, I would have had an enormous, diffi- enormous difficulty stopping drinking. And, and I did, you know, in the 90s, I, I did get time. I had time. You know, I had a year here. I had a year there. But it was impossible. The, the sociability, like I was basically a hermit when I wasn't drinking. You know, I, I didn't well, go out. I didn't, you But know, that's a great idea for a little while. It is, you know, and I always, you know, anytime I would hear somebody new in recovery, you know, they would talk about in group how they were struggling in their dart league at the bar and Mm -hmm. not drinking. And I'm going, maybe you shouldn't right now in recovery be in bars playing darts. Well, maybe you should be a little more safe for a while. Yes. But I mean, her, you know, and she, she. When she first got sober, the author of this article, she went all future trippy, you know. And, and this is the thing that really gets you crazy and, and gets a lot of people in early recovery crazy. When you start thinking like, oh, shit, I'm going to quit drinking. What about my cousin's wedding in August? You right. know, it's like, don't worry about that. You know, you're not, you're not there. Don't, don't use that as like a, a, a why you don't stop. But she's, you know, even with a support system, she says, it wasn't easy. I cried all the time. I grieved the idea of the life in New York that I'd never have because I stopped drinking. Right. I wouldn't glamorously sip a martini with my girlfriends or sit in a bar with a book and a glass of wine. How was I going to bump into my soulmate on a party if I was drinking water? Right. I mean, these are the kind of things that in early recovery swirl around in your head. It's, but really it's that it's the alcoholic voice that's whispering in your ear yeah. that, you know, that without me, you're not going to have any fun anymore, right. but it's total horseshit. As she found it's out, it's, it's complete opposite. You know, you have, I have you know, way more fun. I mean, she said, I, t- my fears turned out to be unfounded. I still get invited to parties and asked on dates. I write more. I run more. I'm the person I always wanted to be. I found new ways to socialize like running clubs and creative workshops, you know, um, she no longer puts herself in situations that she has to numb herself to endure. And really, that's yes. it. I mean, when you talk about life without alcohol, it's all about clarity, growth, and freedom, which is a uniformly positive thing. So if you're in early recovery and you're listening to that little voice in the back of your head saying, you know, you're not going to have any fun. You can't go to your yeah. brother's wedding and, you know, this, that, or the other thing. I mean, just ignore it. Ignore that voice. Yeah, because you make, you know, when you get there, you know, like... It's great. Like, I love now going to, like, 
you know, parties and weddings and yeah, now it's it's great because I don't have to drink. Yes, you know, it's a freedom, um, and I feel like I don't know. It, it's so hard to disabuse someone of the notion that this is going to ruin their good time because yeah. you've been so trained that this is it. You know, football game again with the football. Right, football game. You have to drink. You know, a wedding. It's my wedding. Now what do I do? Mm. You cheers with something else. Right. But it seems so, it looms so large, the way alcohol has been, you know, basically inserted into our, our lives yeah. uh, against, against our wills from, from youth. All you have to change is everything. Yes. All right. <laughs> Recovery in the news. Um, Man, I don't know. I'm not a technician. That's why we have post-production editing. Um, before I hate we, editing. Before we go on to uh, Week in Weird, uh, I, I just wanted to give a shout-out to some of our new Inner Sanctum Patreon oh, yes. members. Uh, we've had a bunch of new members join uh, the patreon.com slash recovery in the Middle Ages group. Uh, one new one we got is Ben M. Uh, thank you very much. Christina, Hi, Ben. Christina S. Hi, Christina. Jay Lolly. Yo, what's up? That's Jenny. <laughs> Work. Uh, Celeste. Uh, Nicole D, Alex Celeste, P, Nicole, Dre Alex. M, Megan, wow. Allie P, and old school Robbie B. Wow, Robbie B from so across the pond. Thank you guys so much for joining us. It's been really cool hanging out with you on Discord. Um, and Liz B too. She's she joined first. But if you uh, guys want the real recovery, yeah, you got to join the Patreon. You got to get into the Discord group. And those are just the new nah, members. I'm kidding. And it's thanks to everybody who, <laughs> thanks to everybody else who joined earlier. Um, and now it's time for Weekend Weird. I, I took a little look ahead. I'm Thank excited you. by this one. <laughs> DNA test required to prove, quote, world's largest potato <laughs> contender is genuine. <laughs> by who? Tim Benal. The tail of an enormous potato, <laughs> thought to be the largest ever found, has taken a strange turn. Oh, as, no. As the, a strange turn. As the owners of the Titanic tuber <laughs> say their quest to claim the world record is now dependent upon the giant vegetable being DNA tested in order to prove that it is genuine. The jaw-dropping spud, which can be seen in the video uh, on the link we will provide in the show notes, yes. sparked worldwide headlines last year when it was unearthed from the garden of Colin and Donna Craig Brown in New Zealand, always to New Zealand, weighing a whopping 17 pounds, the giant vegetable appeared poised to take the title of world's largest potato. However, its owners now lament that the tuber's road to glory <laughs> has been fraught with challenges, including demands that it be DNA tested. Reflecting How on the dare pro- they? Reflecting on the process of trying to obtain the world record of Guinness world records, Colin lamented to one New Zealand media outlet, wow, they don't have anything to do, <laughs> that it's just a never-ending case of having to do whatever they ask for next. Uh, in the month since the massive potato was plucked from the ground, the Craig Browns say that that they have supplied the famed book of records with photos and a video of the spud, which they've dubbed Doug. Doug and the potato. Doug the potato. And uh, and had the huge vegetable examined by an expert, as well as publicly weighed in order to confirm its prodigious size. What sort of expert determines... Like, <laughs> you, you, you call them over and he looks at it and he's like, that's a potato. Uh, but Mike, <laughs> what, what began as fun 
centered around the comically large potato found in their garden has turned into something of an ordeal for the Craig Browns, which Colin mused to another media outlet in New Zealand that it's been a roller coaster of emotion. (laughs) (laughs) Calling the required DNA test extremely deflating, the Spud's proud owner wondered if the record keepers suspect that the vegetable size is the result of some kind of shenanigans. It's shenanigans. (laughs) Shenanigans. Involving genetic modification, which he insists is not the case. I did not genetically modify that potato. There is a lot more to this article that I absolutely cannot bring myself to read. <laughs> so they're sending a small piece of the potato to a university in Scotland. Yeah. Because I guess they don't have places you can test potatoes in New Zealand. Uh, um, so New Zealand fans out there, uh, what is going on in New Zealand? Uh, uh, wow. So oh, uh, oh, no, but you missed the best it, part. What is the best that part? The, uh, the, the, the weight for word from Guinness has understandably taken its toll on poor Doug as Colin says the tuber began to get smaller and smaller every day (laughs) to the point that the couple decided to freeze the vegetable in order to keep it mostly intact until the moment comes that it is either awarded the record or their peculiar dream is finally dashed. (laughs) Holy crap. Uh, Well, while the Craig Browns would obviously like to see their spud receive the title, Colin appears to be okay with whatever the final determination (laughs) might be since, quote, at the end of it all, it's still just a bloody potato. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, man. That's, the tuber. Jesus Christ. Weak in weird. That was a good one. Well, that about does it for us today. I know I had a great time. Did you? Yeah, it was, it was all right. I'm, I'm fine. I know. <laughs> I'm tired. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Visit us at middleagesrecovery.com, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, YouTube, and Twitter. So tweet us a twat, you twit. You twit. Uh, support your favorite show. Uh, drop us a five-star review on iTunes. Buy a shirt. Or Spotify. Uh, you know, get a cool shirt. Uh, write to us. Um, you know, we love to meet new monsters and chopping it up in the Facebook group. Join the inner sanctum at patreon.com slash recovery in the middle ages uh, for a high level of fun. We got bonus episodes. High level of fun. A high level, a of, level fun. of high fun. Uh, we're having a great time. Come a join high us. High level of fun. Come join us. Um, and finally, the best way to help the show is to share it with a friend. So if you get something out of the show, please share the love and help grow the RMA movement. And as we say, non proficiat perfectum. Progress, not perfection. See you next time. Goodbye. Be good. Do good works. Yeah.